Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. I'm Carl. I'm Wally. Prasada Chitta. Chris. Lise. My name is Cass. Paul. I'm David. Me. My name is Harley. I'm Ed. My name is Brian. Jack. John. Gary. Amos. Pete. Mark. I'm Len. I'm Terry. My name is Michael. Tim. Augusta. Jay. George. Philip. Peter. Paul. Percent. Jason. My name is Tage. Everyone? Okay, today we're fortunate to have with this uh, Aragama Brayden, or also known as David. Aragama is a senior member of the Tiratna, Free Ratna Buddhist Order, and on the board of directors of the San Francisco Buddhist Center, where we are. He has been practicing Buddhist for over 32 years and was ordained in Baja, India, in 1994. His experience includes political activism in the environmental and the Central American Solidarity Movement. For the last seven years, he has been traveling regularly to India, where he works closely with the Dalit, formerly untouchable, Buddhists who see the Dharma as a means of both personal development and social liberation. In India, he leads study retreats, speaks at public meetings, and teaches at a training center for young Buddhist social activists in Nagpur. He is the director of Dharma Jiva, a nonprofit organization working to publicize the Buddhist Renaissance in India. Here at Dharma, we'll share pictures and stories about social and Dharma projects in India for about uh, 40, 45 minutes. And then we'll close and announcements. Michael, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here. Um, maybe we can turn the lights down and uh, close those doors. Um, so I'm here uh, to talk to you about uh, something that's very close to my heart um, and something that uh, basically uh, takes most of my time, which is the Buddhist Renaissance in India. And I don't know how many of you know about it, but actually it's generally it's not very well known in, uh, outside of India and even in, in Buddhist circles. So hopefully I can communicate a little bit of it to you today. I'll show you a couple of pictures. So these young people, uh, we might, if we met them on the street here, we might recognize them as coming from India. But um, in India, their, their social situation is dramatically uh, determined by who they are born to, what their family is. 
both of these young people are Dalits, otherwise known as untouchables. And um, there are you know, anywhere from 200 to 300 million people in India that fall into this category of uh, falling below the caste system. India, uh, as you may know, is organized socially uh, with four large caste groups, starting with the Brahmins on the top, the Kshatriyas, the Vishayas, and the Shudras, the laborers at the bottom. And then underneath that system are the outcasts, the people uh, who are, uh, for uh, thousands of years have literally been untouchable. They had to live in separate communities outside the villages. They were only allowed to do the most uh, menial work, which is like clearing uh, the bodies of dead animals and cleaning latrines and things like that. And this system is actually tragically uh, alive and healthy in India today. Um, I could talk a lot about the social oppression in India, but this slide in a way says it all. The sewers are, are cleaned by people from the Dalit community who are basically dropped into the sewers on ropes without any other equipment uh, to clean the sewers. Um, and um, this is just considered normal that this job would fall to them because of their caste or their, their lack of caste, actually. Um, the two pictures I show you at the beginning are, are, are Dalit people who are relatively well off, but most of the Dalit and the tribal people um, live in very bad conditions. And if you've ever been in India, you've, you've seen it. This family here, Prasad Chitta, my friend, uh, took this picture. Uh, this family lives in those uh, abandoned pipes there. Um, India, interestingly, uh, a lot of people think of India as the homeland of Buddhism, which it is. Um, but it hasn't been a Buddhist country uh, for many years. However, if you went back a couple thousand years, um, most of the area of India that you see there uh, would have been actually Buddhist. And there were Buddhist temples and, um, uh, all over the place. People practiced the Dharma. Um, the, uh, the emperor himself was Buddhist. And it's interesting that this history of Buddhism in India has, has largely been forgotten in India. This, the ruins here of this fantastic temple complex is actually a Buddhist monastery. Uh, it was only discovered underneath a mountain of dirt just a few years ago by a Japanese monk. And there are places like this all over India that are basically abandoned. So um, this person here is Dr. Binmarao Ambedkar. And Dr. Ambedkar is probably the most extraordinary social activist of the 20th century, although he's not well known at all outside of India. Um, he was born a Dalit, an untouchable himself. And through a happy set of coincidences, his father worked for the British military, which allowed him to get an education. And he was recognized by a, a reformist, um, a member of the Indian aristocracy, as somebody with extraordinary intellectual ability. And he was given a scholarship, and he came to the United States and got a PhD at Columbia. Went over to England, got a PhD from the London School of Economics, and uh, also uh, studied for the law and was accepted into the bar in, in London. And he came back to India as certainly the most educated, untouchable person in India, uh, possibly the most educated person in India, period. And he came back in the 20s and 30s, and he basically became the Martin Luther King of India, and he led mass movements among the untouchable people for um, a couple of decades. And when the uh, British finally abandoned India, he was recognized, uh, in spite of the fact that he was an untouchable, 
as the person who should write the Indian Constitution. And he wrote the Indian Constitution, including a clause that made untouchability illegal. So technically in India, it is illegal to deal with people as untouchables. But after a period in the early 50s, uh, he left the government and he was disappointed because he was not seeing the social change that he had hoped would come from independence and from this new constitution. And for many years, he had been thinking a lot about what the source of the problem of untouchability was. And uh, he came to the conclusion, actually in the 30s, that while he had been born a Hindu, he was not going to die a Hindu. Because for him, the Hindu religious system and, and casteism were synonymous. So he went through a period of auditioning different religious traditions. He auditioned the Muslims, he auditioned the, <laughs> the Christians, the Sikhs, and the Buddhists. And in 1956, quite dramatically, he uh, became a Buddhist publicly at a ceremony with half a million people in the center of the city of Nagpur. To understand this, this would be a bit like Barack Obama showing up in Atlanta, Georgia, and saying, okay, all Democrats should now become Buddhists. <laughs> It doesn't play very well with a lot of people. Um, and his great expectation was that by becoming Buddhists, um, the untouchable people would lose the, the self-image they had of being untouchable, of being unworthy, and that they would be dramatic improvements in their social condition. And he also hoped, perhaps naively, that Buddhists all around the world would come to India in droves and help them learn how to practice the religion and learn how to uh, educate themselves and uplift themselves. And unfortunately, tragically, this really didn't happen. Um, but you can't unring a bell. And where you, wherever you go all over India today, you find pictures of Dr. Ambedkar in the untouchable communities. And um, in fact, this weekend, actually, in India, in Nagpur, you have a ceremony called the Diksha Bhumi, where a million Dalit people gather at this huge, uh, this huge open grounds here, and that uh, stupa in the center is where Dr. Ambedkar's ashes are. Mm -hmm. And I've been there a couple of times, and being around a million people is quite an extraordinary experience. At night, it's fantastic. You think you're never going to find your way out. <laughs> and uh, you can go in if you if you have access. You can go inside the the stupa, and inside the stupa is this wonderful. Um, place where they keep Dr. Ambedkar's ashes. And the excitement and the devotion of people there is incredible. If you ever want to know what it feels like to be Mick Jagger walking out into a crowd of people, <laughs> go to the Diksha Bhumi because uh, people there are so happy to see Buddhists coming from other countries to honor them, to accept them as human beings, that if you're not careful, you will actually get mobbed. This is the Buddhist flag, and you see this flying all over India in communities where the Dalit people live. And in the last 15 or 20 years, um, there's been a resurgence of more people from the Dalit community uh, converting to Buddhism. This is a group of 160 people from Tamil Nadu in South India that I was fortunate to attend their official conversion from Hinduism to Buddhism. And you travel around, especially in central India, and you will have these big night meetings. I mean, for us, having a crowd here in the center of having you know, 40 or 50 people is wonderful, right? You go to India, you normally get you know anywhere from five to fifteen thousand people turning out for a dharma talk at night, which is very nice actually. So, um, and here is uh, the Bodh Gaya uh, site with the, the tree itself hanging over, and this is a group of people from uh, my particular tradition, the Tree Ratna Order, um, 
approximately a third of people, the people in my order, are actually uh, from India, and virtually all of them are uh, Dalit people. So we're, we're, although we have a modest center here in uh, San Francisco, uh, we have a lot of centers in India. So basically, I want to uh, show you a little bit about the activities now that are going on in India um, among the among the Dalits, the Dalit Buddhists. So you got into the countryside, and we have these uh, wonderful retreat centers. This is a place called Bordaran, with a big stupa, and you can meditate inside it. It's a really wonderful place. And then in the in the towns, um, you have in some cases more modest centers. This is a, a small uh, center in one neighborhood in uh, Nagpur, run by uh, two or three order members, and um, they all kind of crowd into the room and to listen to Dharma talks. This is one of the larger centers. This is in the city of Pune. Uh, this place is called the Mahavihara, very beautiful center and uh, a much larger shrine room and people regularly turning out for Dharma talks. And this is also where they administer a, a wide range of social programs. So one thing is, is that in, uh, in the West, generally Buddhism is seen as kind of a practice that you, you, know, that you do, um, which is kind of, uh, you know, it stands on its own legs, as it were. But in India, the idea of just practicing and not being socially active is foreign to them. If you're going to practice the Dharma, that means you're engaging with the community. It means you're a socially engaged Buddhist. So um, the vast majority of people who are involved in India are directly involved one way or another in various outreach programs, teaching Dharma, or doing social programs. Um, this is one of the clinics that we run. The woman in the center is a doctor. And uh, they bring in children from all over uh, the neighborhood, uh, the slum neighborhood, uh, for inoculations and, and general health care. Um, this is a, a, a team of ours going through the slums. The woman in the center is a friend of mine. Her name is Karana Mati. She's actually English. She's a doctor. And um, I have great admiration for her because uh, she also runs, uh, primarily runs a uh, medical center up in Nepal, which was in the area that was contested between the government guerrillas, the, the government and the guerrilla, Maoist guerrillas for years. And she managed to like stay friends with both sides and, and point out to them that having a clinic there was serving both of their constituencies, and so she managed to survive. She's also pretty extraordinary because every once in a while she comes down into India and um, re-kidnaps uh, girls that have been sold into uh, prostitution and takes them back to Nepal. Um, one of the uh, vectors in India for the transmission of HIV/AIDS is the trucking community. So one of the programs that we have there are these uh, little booths that get set up at the customs stations. Trucks have to stop and have their tickets checked as they go through these stations. And so uh, people are there handing out literature and uh, handing out condoms and things like that. I just threw this in to give you an idea that, that, that um, Buddhism and politics kind of mix among the untouchable community. Um, so you have a lot of these posters with Dr. Ambedkar on the right, Buddha on the left, and then a list of all of the Buddhist candidates for office. <laughs> <laughs> this is a daycare center. Uh, we have uh, kindergartens um, all over India. And they're you know, given basic instruction. I wish I could read this one. Um, I was there a few years ago, and um, I asked to be taken around and shown some of the uh, social projects. 
And um, they, they were very happy to accommodate me, so they drove me down the street where there were all these big bundles of rags. And I kind of said, well, you know, what are we doing here? And it turns out that um, one of the ways that Dalit women support themselves is by picking up uh, rags and, and litter on the street and then reselling it through middlemen to recycling places. And of course, the middlemen make all the profit on the deal. So one of the programs that we have is to teach the women enough uh, math and uh, writing and reading so that they can cut out the middlemen and sell their stuff direct to the wholesalers. This woman was very happy that day because we were handing out texts. And, and that smile just kind of lights me up every time I see it. Um, this is a community of uh, tribal people. And um, they're actually uh, Dalit uh, groups that um, have no fixed abode. They move from place to place. And uh, unfortunately, make most of their living either through begging or through theft, because uh, it's the only way they can make their living. And so I went into this uh, community to meet some of these people. And uh, one of the very interesting things that's come out of the, the Buddhist revival in India is that these people here from this particular group have made the connection with the gypsies in Europe. And it turns out that the gypsies in Europe are probably people that migrated from India from this very group. And so there's actually been a revival of Buddhism in Hungary and places like that, because people kind of see that this is where they come from. So the day I was there, we were running a medical clinic there. And then the other social project, which is really important, is we run hostels. The, the education system in the, in the rural area where many of the Dalits live is not really an educational system at all. So we've uh, built these um, hostels where kids can come in uh, nine months of the year, live free of charge, and go to the government school in the city where they get a much better education. And this is a girls' hostel. So I want to tell you a little bit now about the, the place where I'm primarily involved. This is the, the campus of a, a training center called Nagaloka in Nagpur. And um, this is a place where we run a 10-month uh, residential program for Dalit people from all over India between the ages of 18 and 24. And we uh, give them instruction in uh, Buddhism, in meditation, and in how to be a community activist. And of course, there is a, a statue of Dr. Ambedkar, central on the campus. People are incredibly devoted to Dr. Ambedkar. Um, this is uh, uh, kind of hidden under the trees in, in the back right there is this wonderful little meditation hall, which is one of two meditation halls we have. And um, these kids get up and they meditate every morning, and they meditate every evening. Um, I actually wish I meditated as much as they did sometimes. <laughs> this is one of the dormitories. This is a, a boys' dormitory right now. Went in recently. Um, this is the girls' dorm. And it's, you know, I love going here because these, these young kids, they're, you know, 19 or 20, they're full of energy. They are totally thrilled to be on this campus. They've been like, it's like being dropped into Oz after you've been in Kansas, you know, because here they get respect. Here it's kind of like they're safe. They can just drop the whole untouchable guard that they have up, and they can meet people from all over the country. India is an amazingly diverse country. A lot of, in fact, the majority of the kids that show up for this school do not speak either English or Hindi, which is the language that the courses are taught in. So they're coming out of uh, villages or, or, or towns, and right off the bat, within the first two, three months, they have to learn a new language, and they do it. It's quite extraordinary. This is one of the uh, guest buildings where we have conferences. This was uh, funded in part by the Dalai Lama. 
And here on the left is the entranceway to our main meditation hall, which can accommodate about 500 people. It has this beautiful rupa in it. And on a typical Sunday, like Sunday morning, like we're having Sunday morning here, this is what the crowd looks like, a typical Sunday morning there. You have people coming from the villages and the city all around there to watch that. And yeah, you have these lovely kids. So um, there's uh, instruction in meditation. They do a lot of meditation every day. They also go on meditation retreats out in the countryside. And here's my friend Priyadarshi Talang, who's a, an attorney in Pune, and he's basically teaching them Indian constitutional law, but he's teaching it to them in a very practical manner. For example, one of the things that he emphasizes is if somebody in your village is murdered or tortured or raped, here's how to fill out the police form without making any mistakes. Because the police are all on the side of the upper caste people. And if, you know, if somebody in your village has been murdered because they're a Dalit, and you fill out the form wrong, the police will not follow up. Um, it's incredibly brutal. People are murdered every day in India simply because they're from the Dalit class. Um, you'll notice that actually that there's quite a diversity of, of uh, ethnicity belong to the Dalit group. You know, when the uh, people that come from the north and the northeast look more, to me, oriental than to Indian. We also try to provide some basic computer skills and other skills. Uh, one of the big problems, of course, for these kids when they get out is how can they support themselves. Um, just introduce you to a few of the people here. This is the Bay Ratna, who's the director of training of the program. He was a, uh, an engineer for the telephone company in India, but he gave the job up uh, basically 20 years ago and devotes himself full-time to helping run this school. Um, this is my friend Nagamitra, uh, who does fundraising and, and other various work for, uh, for the school. He's, he's a real character. Um, I can tell stories about him, but I don't have time, actually. <laughs> Um, and this is Loka Mitra. Loka Mitra is originally from England, but he uh, moved to India in the early 70s and became very interested in supporting the Buddhist resurgence there. He married an Indian Dalit woman, uh, raised a family with her, and he's one of the key movers and shakers behind uh, Nagaloka. Amazing person. Um, one of the nice things about Nagaloka is that uh, because it has a beautiful campus and it's a real center of the Dalit Buddhist activity that attracts support from internationally known Buddhists. Uh, this is Sulak Shivaraksha from Thailand, who's uh, written a number of books about uh, Buddhist social engagement. The Dalai Lama, of course. Um, this is Sandong Rinpoche, who until about a year ago was the prime minister of the Tibetan government in exile. He's also a university professor and a really charming guy. He comes frequently. Say his name again. Sandong Rinpoche. And this, of course, is Thich Nhat Hanh. So um, this is, this is a, a walking Buddha. Okay, And this image here, and you can tell from the size of the trees how big this is. It's a very huge rupa. It was contributed by donors in Taiwan and brought to uh, Nagaloka and assembled on the center of the campus. Um, and um, I happened to have the good fortune to be in Nagpur when uh, their official unveiling was. And if you went through town, you all see these billboards inviting you to this the event where we're going to unveil this uh, statue. And uh, on the day of the uh, opening, uh, Kuang Shin, a, a, a 
fantastic monk from uh, Taiwan um, who gives all his money to support Dharma outreach projects in the world as opposed to building temples for himself, which is common in Taiwan. Um, he was there. He, he provided half the funding. Here he is uh, making an offering at the statue of Dr. Ambedkar. And here's the crowd coming in. Um, this picture was taken early in the morning. My friends at Nagaloka said, ah, there will be 25,000 people here today. And I thought, that's great, but if we get 6,000, I'll be happy, mm -hmm. right? So they take this picture early in the morning, going, yeah, we probably got about a few thousand people. This is exciting. By the end of the day, 100,000 people would come through. Oh, it was you could not move on the campus. Just a, a river of people coming in from all over Nagpur. And now it has become this pilgrimage place. You have Dalit people in, in, in Bombay who get on a bus, take an 18-hour bus trip to Nagaloka, circumambulate the, the Rupa, and get back on the bus and go back to Bombay. Yes? What's the significance of the walking? I'll get to that later. Okay. Thank you. Um, I realize I've been talking a lot. I want to uh, actually let some of these people speak for themselves, as it were. Um, this is Deepak. Uh, and he was at the school. I was born in a small village in an untouchable family in Gujarat. They call us Harajan there, but we don't like it. That's what they call us. We're poor. My father traveled around to find work to support our family and had a miserable life. Eventually, he got enough money to get a small house and got me an education. And then one day, out of the blue, I met a Buddhist who came to my village. He told me about Nagaloka, and the local order members bought me a ticket and put me on the train to Nagpur. In the first year course, I strongly remember the morning meditations. I had a deep experience of peace for the first time in my life, so I decided to become a meditation teacher. I was inspired by all of the Buddhist teachings and by the people at Nagaloka. We watched the stars in the Bollywood movies, but the real heroes are the order members who are taking the Dharma seriously and helping people to understand it. I have meditated every day since 2004. There is a great potential for Buddhism in India. There are 20 to 30 million people who are open to Buddhism now, plus all the backward passes. If offered to them, all these people would take advantage of these teachings. Buddhism in traditional countries is declining, but in India, in Bombay, there were 2 million converts last year. It's a great movement that is underway, and it can inspire the rest of the world. This is Divya. I'm from Tamil Nadu in South India. Our family has two acres of land, but my mother has to work on other people's fields to make money. My father died when I was in the ninth grade and left seven of us in the family. It was a good thing that my father died when he did. He was opposed to girls getting an education. After he died, other relatives tried to stop me and my sisters from school. But my mother insisted that we get as much schooling as we wanted, and she supports us financially. Originally, my family was Hindu, and we blindly followed all the superstitious practices. But now I've realized that there is no God the way the Hindus say. I've learned about helping society and the work that Dr. Nabedkar did, and I want to help society in that way, too, and follow the path that he made. This is Lal Vijay. When I was a child and went to school, I saw a very deep kind of discrimination, particularly against lower caste people. I was a youth leader in the ESP, a major political party representing low caste people. I was a district vice president and traveled to many meetings, and at one meeting I met a graduate who told me about Ambedkar and his social ideas. 
I had a lot of questions about how the lower caste people could improve their lives with the Dharma. I knew that Hindu parties were propagating Hinduism, so I decided that we should learn how to spread Buddhism. That's why I decided to come to Nagaloka. When I first came here, I was mentally aggressive. I was always prone to arguing and fighting. After I came here, I became cooler. I was able to understand that to be angry is not good. Now I'm able to judge my thoughts and calm down and not to make any decisions quickly. Now I'm able to think before making decisions. I used to think that the only means to propagate Dr. Bedkar's thoughts was by violence. I thought that we had to take revenge against the Brahmins and higher caste people. But now I know that the only way to propagate Dr. Bedkar's idea is through peaceful revolution, the thoughtful revolution. This is Deep Mala. Deep Mala is from what they call the scavenger caste. And their caste is limited to cleaning latrines and bathrooms. I work with an organization called the Social Development Foundation in Uttar Pradesh. We work on women's empowerment and land acquisition cases. Sometimes landlords or higher caste people take the land for villagers. So we work on behalf of the poor people in the legal system. Regarding women's issues, in the villages, women don't get education or feel that they have the right to wear nice clothes or go out in public. We try to make village women aware that they are part of society and can have responsibility. I've learned that the Buddha was against the caste system and denied Hindu rituals and superstition. He emphasized equality, brotherhood, kindness, and metta. I enjoy the Anapanasati practice since it helped me to strengthen my concentration. I'm going to be 18 in February, and in 18 years of my life, I realized that I've experienced a lot. Earlier, I wanted to be a doctor, but then I asked myself, what is really meaningful about being a doctor? I knew that I wanted to do something better for the life of the people, and that being a doctor would require more study. But then I thought, if I go to the villages and directly interact with the lives of the people, that is not less than being a doctor. So I changed my goal of life and decided to be a social worker. In India, if you are born as a girl, you have to pay a very high cost since you always have a lot of problems. When you make decisions, you always have to think not for yourself, but for other people who are concerned with you. Here, in every state of life, being born as a girl means you have terrible situations. You can't go out. You just always have some other people making decisions for you. Simply, you don't feel yourself very free making decisions. Life is very demanding for women. You always say, this is my life. This is my dream. This is my ambition. I want to be this and that. But I want to say one thing about those people who used to see dreams. Dreams are not those that you have when you close your eyes. A dream is something that doesn't let you close your eyes. It makes you awake. It is something that you have to do before you sleep, really. So after you complete that dream, then you can go to sleep. Let's finish up briefly here. Uh, one of the things that I'm doing to try to make people more aware of what's happening in India is I'm uh, taking delegations, tour groups to India. This is the group that I took last January. And it's great because uh, we spend time seeing the historical uh, ruins. Uh, we get to see social programs like the sewing class here, meet with people, go into the, into the towns, into the ghettos where the Dalit people live, talk to them. Uh, we run seminars where people come in uh, who have uh, expertise and give lectures about the Indian social system and, and uh, civil rights in, in India. Uh, archaeological sites. This is the um, river at Varanasi, the Ganges River. 
This is the uh, Vulture's Peak, where Buddha spent many years in Rajgir teaching. And this is uh, Sarnath, uh, the Amek Stupa, where the Buddha first taught. And this is our delegation, our delegation leader holding up his Buddhist flag. That's my friend, Manidama. And this is Kusanara, where the Buddha died. So um, I want to leave you with two slides. This is the statue of Dr. Ambedkar on a festival day at Nagaloka with all the people coming to make offerings of flower and incense there because they really see him as a bodhisattva. And if he's not a bodhisattva, I, I don't know who he is, actually. Um, and it was, his, it was his idea that the kind of Buddha image that people should look at is a walking Buddha, not a seated Buddha. And there's a wonderful poem by a Dalit poet, which I will finish up with, um, that kind of illustrates what Dr. Hanvankar is talking about. It's called Buddha. I never see you sitting in Jetta's garden, sitting with eyes closed in meditation, in the lotus position, or in the caves of Ajanta and Alora with stone lips sewn shut, sleeping the last sleep of your life. I see you walking, talking, softly, healingly, on the sorrow of the poor, the weak, going from hut to hut in the life-destroying darkness, torch in hand, giving the sorrow that drains the blood like a contagious disease a new meaning. So um, that is my slideshow. And if you had any questions, I would be delighted if you could have the light. Maybe I misunderstood. I thought the caste system was Indian and not just not not Hindu specifically. Is that is that incorrect? Is it a Hindu system as opposed it, to an Indian system? It, it, it definitely has its origins in Hinduism, but as a social system, it's actually kind of migrated into Christianity and Islam um, in uh, India. Um, so it's 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 one of those things that the you know, the, the idea of the four castes comes from the Vedic tradition where, you know, the, the gods' body, you know, the, the, the Brahmins came from the head and the Shudras came from his feet and so on and so forth. That's the historical origin of it. But it's the way Indian society is organized. And while we talk about these four categories and then the outcasts, the truth of the matter is there's closer to 6,000 castes. And they're all vying all the time to see who's where in the pecking order. So is the idea that if you're Buddhist, you're just not part of that at all? Is that, is that what Yes. When people convert to Buddhism in India, they're basically saying, I'm walking away from the whole thing. I'm no longer part of the caste system. I'm a human being. I'm an individual. I'm a Buddhist. And it's really a declaration of personal dignity and opting out of the social system of uh, the caste system. And is that acceptable to most other people in India? Or what do you think the answer is? <laughs> in a way, in a way to, to, if you go in and tell somebody you're a Buddhist in India, you're announcing the fact that you're untouchable. Because uh -huh. um, people go, oh, well, only... I mean, there are a few Brahmins. I mean, I know Brahmins who become Buddhists and so on and so forth. But the vast majority of Buddhists, and there are millions of them, come from the untouchable past. So.
Uh, thank you so much for such a wonderful presentation. Uh, I have a question on, um, I was so fortunate to visit Alora and Ajanta many years ago. And, you know, here's this incredible, at one time, Buddhist civilization and culture. Uh, I'm wondering if the people that are there or in that area, if they still have their Buddhist blood or, or, or uh, feelings for that culture and how that is working in that area, and also where your area is in India. Uh, your, uh, of school. Right. Most of the activities. Well, as that first school in Nagpur is a dead center in India. It's, it's due, uh, New York, Bombay is, is due east, about 800 miles in the very center of the country. Maharashtra. Yeah, Maharashtra. Okay. Um, there, are lots, there are lots of origin stories in India. India is a country that's like full of myth, right? And a lot of the, uh, a lot of the Dalit people their myth is that they were the Buddhists 2,000 years ago that were oppressed when the Brahmin, Brahministic system took over again. Um, whether that's historically accurate or not, people will debate. Okay, But these people do feel that, like Ajanta and Alora, that that's their culture. And when they come into contact with it and they see these sites, like the ruins that, that, were, um, that were dug up and stuff, there's this real sense of, of, of pride in place that you know, this isn't something new, you know, that their roots go back 2,500 years to the Buddha. And it's really good for their self-esteem and, uh, and for their pride, actually. Yes, sir. I was wondering, I don't know, what is it about Buddhism? Um, do you think that, because Hinduism, maybe, and Christianity, Muslim also have social justice uh, activists, I would think. Is that true? And, and what is it about Buddhism that makes it especially okay, oriented towards social justice? And are there links between other social justice movements and those other religions? With, with well, certainly, that? there are also links between people of goodwill in all religions. And I, I, I work with a Christian uh, at Nagaloka who's very supportive of what's happening there. But basically, in India, the significance is, is that when Buddha was alive and when he was teaching, he ordained untouchable people and high caste people without regard to caste. And that, at the end of the day, is the most fundamental thing about Buddhism for the Dalit people, is that they see that the Buddha, this great historical religious figure, the Buddha himself, uh, did not see caste and denied the validity of caste. And for them, that's totally crucial. And um, there, you know, you go into the rest of Indian society, and there's a wide range of attitude about caste, but there's not a whole lot of like uh, moral indignation about we should get rid of this. You know, well, it's, it's an inconvenient truth, or you know, I really into caste. It's, you know, that's the way that God's meant to be. And stuff. You get you get all these different views, but the Buddhists are absolutely uncompromising on this on this point. You know, they they teach that. Human equality is human equality is human equality. End story. Uh, we may need to get you back again uh, to fully answer this question, but I'd love to <laughs> know how you got from growing up to where you are now, your own personal uh, odyssey on this. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, in, in, in one minute or less, I was, I was raised as a Calvinist. Um, 
And um, I don't think I ever quite bought the predestination and hellfire and brimstone thing. And eventually, when I got to be in my late 20s, uh, I came into contact with uh, Buddhism. First with meditation. Uh, I was really kind of put off by all of this stuff, you know. Um, but gradually, I just started to see that Buddhism was saying what I'd kind of come to in my own mind as the way the world worked. And uh, it really worked for me. And so I decided to become a Buddhist. And it was only by luck, actually, that I uh, was offered a chance to go to India and ordained there in 1994. And so I was like dropped into this totally new world where I was getting ordained with ex-untouchable people. And it had a profound effect on me. And um, I've been going back, at least for the last eight years, every year, uh, and running programs and teaching there and keeping up with my knowledge Buddhist friends. And it's, it's wonderful. It's fantastic. You did a like, tour. Did you have Buddhist um, people that would come from the States? Yes, in January, I took a group of 12 people. And this coming February, I'm taking another group of nine people. I have three spaces left if anybody wants to come. Um, and there's literature about that tour out there. And you get to meet the Dalit Buddhists, and you also get to go to the pilgrimage places like Bodhi Gaya and so forth. Thanks so much for your presentation. Um, what have you learned from your Dalit Buddhist friends, and what's, what have been the teachings that have been most profound for you from those, those relationships, those friendships? Um, it has really helped me see through all of the conditioning that we consciously or unconsciously have about our status, our role, our identity. Um, and it is strange, but I have friends over there who grew up picking rags off the street and then being in uh, street gangs and stuff before they became Dharma teachers. And I have more in common, by far, with those people than I do that I do with the people I went to university with in Massachusetts and so on and so forth. Uh, it's just a great human connection. And they're wonderful people. They're, they're so totally open and, uh, and generous. You have to be really careful when you go into their homes not to admire anything. Thank you for a wonderful presentation. It's very inspiring. I'm also inspired by how uh, recently we've seen the face of Dharma change in the West. It's become much more uh, diverse in communities of color. And of course, the Buddha was a person of color. And to see it now being revived in India, uh, because I've been there a couple of times, and it was very uh, noticeably absent. Uh, as of 1990, and to hear your stories and see this is just wonderful. And then also, it's a great example that you know, liberation happens on the inside and the outside. a lot of the pictures that the men's on one side, the women's on the other side, that everything's kind of separated, segregated. So in keeping with this notion of non-hierarchy, 
Yeah, well, there's the Indian socialists definitely, women and men seem to kind of live in different worlds. And that's something that we're really trying to work with without being too pushy about it over there. One of the things that I noticed is when I first started going to Nagaloka, you'd have a class of 60 boys and six girls. And we're going, we've got to get more, more girls involved in this. And so now I'm happy to say that the classes are coming in more or less 50-50. And uh, the girls are fantastic students. However, they're still subject to the, the social reality, which is so strong, which is that most of them at age 19, when they finish the course and go back to the village, the parents are going to want to marry them off. Because the idea of not being married at 22 and, and as a girl, at least in India, is, is you know, people just don't, don't, don't get that. So that's, that's one of those areas where there's a lot of stuff to be done to really kind of balance things the way I guess we would like to see it balanced there, but we're kind of taking it one step at a time there. We've got some great women board members there, doing really fantastic things, yeah. Okay, thank you very much for, for coming today. You know, this is my center and, and I'm always so delighted to know that you folks are making regular use of it on Sundays, and it's fun to actually get a chance to come in and talk to you. Um, so anyway, thank you very much. I'm Sarah, I'm uh, literature. Uh, yes, there's a, there's a website, dharmajiva.org and stuff. There's literature out there. Feel free to grab this a brochure for the Dharmajiva. And there's also uh, eight and a half by 11 sheets about the tour if you'd like to go to the Thank you. Uh, now we have time for announcements. My name is Cage and I'm the host today. Uh, there's some treats outside um, and some, uh, I think, lotus mooncakes left over from last night. I'm not sure what those are, but uh, <laughs> they sound interesting. Uh, there's hot water for coffee or tea. Um, if you do have tea, wash your mug out and hot soapy water in the sink. There's a um, mailing a member list that uh, will allow you to sign up for our general mailing list, but also the newsletter that we send out. Um, at 12.30, there's a group that goes out for lunch um, informally. If you're interested, they usually meet at the door. And then finally, I'm going to be passing around the, the Donna Bowl. The suggested donation is 5 to $8. Uh, yeah, I bought uh, some tickets for next Saturday night's performance of Electra and ACT. It, uh, orchestra seats for $35, and I have two extra seats, two people um, bowed out. So if anyone wants to go see Electra next Saturday night, ACT. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name is Augusta. When I was here last week, Baroque and Tom encouraged me to announce a day long that I'm leading next Sunday at the Happiness Institute. It's from, so it conflicts with my regular gathering, but it's from 10 to 5. And if you want information about that, I'll be around for about 15 minutes. And I'll probably post it on the website. Uh, we actually have a little extra time. Um, are you open tomorrow? Oh, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, at least I'm fine with my Uh, back there. You know, 
the Buddhism uh, as more of a uh, practice in college by uh, some professors. And they, at the time, they talked about Buddhism being something that um, wasn't necessarily, uh, there wasn't really an outreach component. Maybe it was their particular tradition, but they spoke out of it sort of as this mystery, like you have to find it, you know. Um, and uh, I'm just struck by, um, you know, this sort of, you know, what does it mean to do outreach? And I'm also struck by sort of this more, you know, well, <clears throat> well certainly not as a word or as divided of a caste system in India that exists, but we do have social class system that we don't want to talk about here. Um, and uh, I'm just struck by what would that would what would something, have you thought about what something would look like here, sort of a more overt approach to people that are marginalized? I, well, thank you for giving me that question. Okay. Um, go, going back to Dr. Ambedkar in the 50s, when he converted to Buddhism, he was really expecting that the world Buddhist community had this kind of outgoing desire to help make it available. And in this case, people were asking. It wasn't that we were knocking on the door like the Mormon missionaries and trying to sell something. You know, it's like people wanted the Dharma. And the Buddhist traditions in Asia had turned out to be you know, fairly insular. And a few times that they've come into India, they basically tried to make people practice their version of Chinese Buddhism or something like that. So it's not necessarily a good cultural fit. But in general, I think that there is this sense that, that Buddhism is something you have to go and ask for, that you're not going out and making it available. Okay. And in India, that whole idea is like totally foreign. I mean, you know, people uh, spend their whole lives going from village to village, telling the story of doctrine and Bedkar, telling the story about the Buddha, talking about social equality, and, and there's a very outgoing, open character to it. And I think that it's something Buddhists in the West can really learn from. Because I think there's a certain self-satisfied insularity that sometimes crops up in Western Buddhist sanghas. You know, I'm doing a meditation, that's my thing. You know? um, and, and these people have a whole different model of going out, directly helping people in medicine, education, social work, so on and so forth, and also helping them with the Dharma. And they see that as a seamless unity. And so I... I can talk for hours about it, but I think that that's a really good thing for just us to reflect on. When we say that we're Buddhists, what does that mean? Do we have a, perhaps a um, reason to want to help Buddhists in other countries with the Dharma and stuff? Just something to think about. Wait, I thought I had somebody here first. I just wanted to say that the Buddhist Peace Fellowship in Berkeley is a socially engaged organization. And uh, they actually... Well, years ago, I, had, I took courses sort of. There were long, long seminars. I lasted three years on social engagement. So um, it's not as uh, big as, you know, maybe uh, we can imagine, but that's something locally that's going on. Maybe someone has other opportunities for study. Yeah. It's not to say that there aren't really good things happening on Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Yeah. In fact, the. the Former executive director of this peace fellowship uh, is Alan Sanaki, and he comes with me to Anagaloka and he teaches at Anagaloka also. 
So that's, that's wonderful. Yeah? Real quick, I just, uh, just want to mention when I uh, traveled to Magaya and Sarnath and other places, I was just uh, really surprised there were so many Hindus and Christians that were coming there, and that was part of their, which is part of their thing, not the solo thing, but they were really reverent in visiting those places. Secondly, again, the thing about the culture is so strong. I know the Christians and Muslims are recruiting Dalits also, but I noticed that they do have that caste system even within Catholics and the Protestants and Muslims. And it's difficult, but I think Buddhism, and if you can explain a little more, how they really can do it differently to include everyone, but also these people that are here uh, institute, when they go back home, won't the parents bury them off to non-Buddhist people in their village? And it's, it's so difficult that the culture and the customs are so strong. Well, one of the characteristics of the, of the, the Buddhist conversions that happened is whole communities have converted. So there's no problem finding a Buddhist husband or a Buddhist wife. Oh, okay. Uh, it's just like millions of them floating around. Okay. Um, so the parents would be... The parents, yeah. Like, you know, my friends, they married their kids off to... Oh. They arranged marriages for one of the Buddhists or something like that. One interesting thing to keep in mind is that the Hindus consider Buddhism to be part of Hinduism. Mm -hmm. The Hindus actually control Bodhgaya. When push comes to shove, that's a Hindu-controlled site, which is just something to, to think about. There's been a, a real push in the last 20 years, annual demonstrations in Delhi, organized by Buddhists say that we ought to be able to control Bodhgaya. But the Hindus say that the Buddha is an incarnation of Vishnu, and therefore it's a Hindu temple. Mm -hmm. no. <laughs> <laughs> I just made the one that I did that the Buddha was Hindu, just like Jesus Christ was Jewish. I mean, there's like, where he come from and what he was, and we created this, and we've labeled a different way because what he taught. Yeah. Just, we all know that, right? But kind of throw it in the mix. Christ was another incarnation of uh, the Now, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was mentioned in your biography that you, that you did some work in, with uh, Central American um, organizations or did some work involving Central America. Was that like a Buddhist? No. Quite not Buddhist. Oh. <laughs> I worked with the, uh, the Sandinista government in Nicaragua during the revolution, bringing American technical volunteers down to help the revolution. Uh, I mean, I was a Buddhist during that period of time, but that wasn't my primary focus. And actually, one of, the, one of my experiences of five or six years doing that kind of work in, in Central America convinced me that actually you have to go below the level of politics to values, morality, and spiritual life if you're actually going to affect permanent change in society. And that's why I think the idea of a Dharma revolution in India is crucial. Because if you just try to make it a political revolution in India, the political system there will co-opt anybody like that. You know, if you're not clear on what your values are, you will be co-opted in India. It's, it's an amazing place. Okay, well thank you very much. We'll close now with the thank you for
by the powers and truth of the practice. May all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all be never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.